done almost 2,000 interviews on my program with all different types of healers who provide a multi-sensory and non-Western pedagogy in their practices. Their stories help to complete that circle of artistic authenticity which we all strive for. The cats I interview have been making a living on the bandstand for many years. They have dealt with good leadership and bad. They have come to different understandings of what love is. They have overcome a lot of adversity in their lives, and they are adept at playing all musics. And uh, I guess last month I had a chance to go see uh, my favorite band, Circles Around the Sun, and I always am fascinated with the cats that are on the same bill as them, and I was treated to a couple of nights of incredibly uh, genreless music from uh, Rich Ruth and his band, which included my guest. Um, and to be quite honest, I mean, there's a lot of incredible uh, player, horn players, wind players that uh, demonstrate a lot of facility and chops, and they can play a lot of notes, and it's really intellectual and wonky, and I wind up normally just staring at the wall. This cat, who I got a chance to see in person, just blew me out of the room because it was like some sort of amalgamation between Joe Farrell, Doc Kupka, you know, and then himself, just a bastion of funk and blues and a lot of jazz and I think the coolest part about my guest is just the idea that the language of music is so embedded in him that he doesn't have to think about the rudiments per se, and he can just riff off the cuff, which is what Sonny Stitt and Bird and James Moody did. When you listen to them play, uh, they weren't running through scales. They already had the knowledge of bebop inside them and were just riffing off the cuff. He goes by Sasquatch. Jared Selner, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you for having me, Jake. It's an honor to connect with you, brother. Um, you know, I wanted you to just talk a little bit about um, the idea of uh, how you learned music. Did you learn music by ear before you learned to read? Oh, let's see. Well, so... Music is uh, has always been sort of a fundamental in, in my household. I grew up, uh, my mom was a singer in her youth and used to do a lot of musical theater. She plays a little bit of uh, acoustic guitar and a little bit of piano. My dad uh, is an avid fan of music, um, has a huge guitar collection. I was actually just talking to him about, he's up to about 75 guitars. <laughs> no way, <laughs> so, dude. Yeah. Holy so, so it's, yeah. It's instruments were always around and it was kind of only a matter of time before my brothers and I, uh, picked one up. So, uh, I, am told that when I was a, a, a kid, I would run in during the night court theme song and dance. So there's dude, that was my song favorite song. theme song by far, dude. I, I can't Apparently believe you. It was, it was mine too. <laughs> dude, that is sick. That, wow. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, you know, I guess it, it was kind of, you know, my, my dad, Put, a, put together a guitar for me when I was a, a, a wee child and uh, never really, you know, didn't show a ton of interest in the guitar uh, until, you know, I, I got old enough in the school system where they're like, oh, band is available next year, but you can do orchestra this year. 
So I learned how to read on a violin, which is kind of funny. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, I did one year of violin, and then I did three years on clarinet because my family owned a clarinet. So it was like, well, there aren't any saxophones available in, in the stock system, and we weren't, we didn't have a ton of money. So it's like we have this clarinet, and the band director is like, it's easy to switch, you know, if you, if you decide to switch. So. I stuck it out on clarinet till eighth grade, and then my band director, eighth grade, a guy named Jim Roach, was like, "Hey, like, we need, you know, we need a tenor saxophone for the band. Why don't you switch to saxophone?" So no, I learned how to read about the same way I think most people learn how to play music. It was all kind of at the same time, um, and I could certainly read before, by the time I was playing the saxophone, but. But the way that I learned tenor sax, uh, again, like I had played clarinet for a couple of years, but yeah, Jim put me in the storage closet for three weeks and said, figure it out. Figure out how to play this. I said, okay. So you, I mean, I want to be very clear though. Like you were uh, already maybe too young to completely be conscious of it, but you, the music had already really found you at that point. You didn't mind shedding for three weeks in that, in that shed. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was, I, I loved, I, I always loved music. I, I, let's back up to that. Yeah, like, like I said, I was told that the night court theme song triggered <laughs> me to dance. I actually have a scar on my forehead dancing to the Robin Hood, Disney's oh. Robin Hood, when oh. I was five or six. Uh, you know, I got, I got way into the Beatles as soon as I could hear what music was. You know, my parents had Beatles CDs laying around and, and, uh, and yeah, and actually, uh, when I, uh, started playing the saxophone, the first thing my dad did when I first started playing saxophone seriously was he went out and bought a CD of, uh, of Dark Side of the Moon. He said, you got to check this out. Wow. Yeah. Here's some saxophone for you. And so, <laughs> so yeah, so that, that, that's sort of how I did it. I've, I've, I've always been a, yeah, I've always sort of leaned into playing by ear, but I can read. But I always have leaned into playing by ear because that's just sort of how I had to learn the tenor when I first got handed one. I, you know, it's, it's, it's perfect. I mean, did you get to a point, you know, I mean, it's so different now. Like, I mean, if, if you were around in the late sixties and early seventies, it's possibly that Jared Selner would have been out in LA and you would have been at one of the studio sharks playing jingles, playing those kinds of jingles and uh, commercials, suds and duds, uh, soundtracks, all this kind of stuff. Um, do you remember like the first experience you had where you realized, like, that the vocabulary or the the rudiments had were totally ingrained in you, and you had built up enough trust with the cats in the band where you got, you were just reacting to everything around you, and you were really not even thinking at that point. I mean, can you talk about the earliest time? Because I mean, you know, Rich's music is kind of uh, transcends genre. But I mean, I you made it look so easy to go on stage with uh, circles and just play all these themes and ideas. Didn't repeat any of them, and you weren't. There was no intellectualization of it. Did, do you remember that? Was there a definitive moment or a band early on where you just were beginning to just react to the sound around you? So my, I was really lucky. Uh, I went to the high school that I went to. Uh, it's called Lloyd Norris High School. It's uh, here in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I'm from. Mm. And the band director was a woman named Sue Johnson. She, she actually lives out. 
in California now and I believe is, is taking some, some, uh, professional gigs on organ. She's a phenomenal organ player, wow. piano player. Wow. Uh, also, she was also a great saxophonist and she, uh, ran our, our high school, we had a high school jazz combo and she would run it like it was a working band. So like my freshman year of high school, I think we did like 35 gigs what? in the in the high school jazz band, which is like That's unheard of. Yeah, she would run us like we were in a real band. So we practiced it you all know, once or twice a week. I think it was once a week. And then she would uh, she would she used us as kind of the fundraising arm of the band. So like oh band, you know, marching band needs the uniforms or we need, you know, a charter a bus or this or that. She would find gigs that, that paid in the community for the jazz band, you know, like ribbon cuttings and groundbreakings and, and corporate dinners and that kind of thing. And she would get a check cut to the, the jazz band booster or the band boosters. But yeah, we were kind of the fundraising arm of, of the, of the band, uh, the band. And, and we kind of, from that, like I got a lot of experience early on, uh, Learning how to improvise, you know, she she had us improvise immediately. Uh, would she know, just would she just like point? She would like point to you or someone and just like because Sun Ra used to do that. It was just like you, like, and then you had no time to think. She you, would, yeah, that's she un- would quite literally, yeah. Like if we needed to stretch for time, which we often did on some of these corporate gigs, <laughs> it would be like point at you know point at you know Dan in the trumpet section. Okay, and I point at you know, Sanders on tenor stacks. Okay. Now Jared's on, you know, and yeah, it would, it would literally just be like, play it right now. Like, don't think about it. Like it's your turn. Uh, sometimes it would be like, okay, we're going to, these two people will take solos, but sometimes she just pointed and she, you know, she put some pretty heavy music in front of us. As, as in fact, I remember she was the one that introduced me to like her Hancock of the Headhunters. She turned. That is so cl- What a hip woman, man. Oh yeah, we had a we had a stereo system in the band room, and she cranked it. It was during a, a jazz lab class that oh. I took my freshman year. <laughs> so there was like four students in this class, and she puts on a vinyl copy of the Headhunters, and that that the whistles, the the beer bottle whistles from Watermelon Man comes in, and I just remember like wide eyed, like what is this music? <laughs> and then that was the class that day was we listened to to uh, Herb Hancock and the Headhunters all the way down and then uh and then talked about it <laughs> you know Dude, that's the greatest story of all time what was this is like maybe like late 90s what, what what years were these uh this was 2000 and, this would have been 2002 interesting so, so this was i mean you couldn't have asked i mean that record i went to see a band last night and they're playing water they're playing that uh, tune off that album i forget which one it was but they're also hypnotic and funky um it, looking back on it, it, it sounds like it was a combination of getting yourself together, learning how to improvise. It was also music appreciation to a degree. Um, do you feel like? Oh yeah. Go ahead. Oh yeah. yeah. Just, just a huge amount of like like Sue Johnson. Uh, she was really good at saying, "Listen to this." Now listen to this. Have you checked out Michael Brecker? Have you checked out Bird? And you know this and that. And then. Um, there was a there was a, a saxophone player uh, that was I think I think he was working on his masters at this point at Western Michigan University, which is the local college, 
and she she hooked me up with him and said, you got to take lessons with Sean Wallace, Sean Fender Wallace. So I took lessons with him. And to this day, the stuff that Sean taught me when I was a freshman in high school, I, I recite to students and I recite to other people because he was, you know, but again, that was all. Well, no, let, let, let's talk about some of those tenants. What, what are some of those things that are seared into your heart that you pass on that you learn from him? Well, so, 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 you know, he, he had a very similar, uh, a lot of, a lot of his philosophy was similar to, to Sue, you know, she's pointing at people to solo. My first lesson with John was, uh, or with Sean, sorry, John, I, John was a guy. It's all right. Yeah. With, with Sean was, the uh, the very first thing he says, so, so you know, you're, you know, I'm, I'm a freshman in high school. So, so you know, your C major CS, yeah, I said, play it. He said, yes, yeah. He says, great. <laughs> he goes, uh, all right, go home and learn the other 11. <laughs> and I said, okay. He goes, yeah. He's like, how do I do it? He's like, figure it out. Like, you've got it here, right? I said, yeah. He said, we'll figure it out. Wow. By ear. wow. So that was my first lesson was learn all 12 major scales by ear. Okay. <laughs> you know? That's like, a genius. That, that's, that is such an old school. I just wanted to share the story, and you can keep riffing. I just remember, I mean, it sounds so quaint, uh, but um, – Mark Levine, great, rest in peace, great trombone and piano player. He wasn't even at Berkeley. Oh, yeah. He wasn't even at Berkeley, but he uh, it was so loose back then that, you know, uh, guys that were teaching there, uh, you know, would give lessons on the side. Like Jack, he was taking lessons with Jackie Byer. Jackie was, a, on top of being just an incredible pianist, was actually a great drummer. And so the lesson was like, Mark would walk in, <clears throat> Jackie would sit down at the drums, Mark would sit at the piano and say, let's play Cherokee in all 12 keys. And by D or F, Mark would fall apart. And and then Jackie would say, well, now you know what you need to work on. I'll see you next week. It was like a 10-minute lesson, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's – yeah, Sean, Sean would uh, – he had me, he had me uh, you know – like, again, freshman in high school, he said, buy the Omnibook and start reading the Omnibook. What? Like <laughs> – like he's like, yeah, so working on Parker right now. It's like, okay, so you know, and I'll never, and I'll never say that I like got a whole, you know, like I, I learned so much from that, just from grinding through some of these solos, but that I never really could play all the way through, you know, as a freshman. But like, you learn, know, learn something from that. But yeah, Sean would also tell me, you know, the importance of practice. He would always say like. You know, if you miss a day of practice, you can notice, you'll notice. But if you miss two days, your wife will notice. And if, and if you miss three, then your audience will start to notice. Wow. And I feel like right now as a 34-year-old, you know, now I'm like literally 20 years divorced from that moment in time. I feel like I'm just now like, gone. darn it, he was right. <laughs> that Well, then I'm, I'm going to ask you, tell me what you think, and I'm, I really want you to talk to younger cats because, I mean, that word practice, I don't know, what did he mean by that? Because in some ways you listen to Bill Evans or Sonny Rollins practicing and they're just playing what they don't know. It, you know, I mean, it was. it's not just, I, I think some cats get into a secure situation and then they're practicing stuff that they already know. Uh, do you think that, it, what does practice mean to Jared Selner? What would be, because I think the one reason that people take days off at a time is because they're not really pushing themselves beyond their comfort zone. So they get bored and they don't think they need to practice, but in fact, they're not really practicing what they should be practicing. 
Yeah, so Sue, uh, you know, Sue got into us in an early age, especially with the jazz band kids, but with all of us in the, in the larger bands. She got into us with an early age, like, you know, if, if you stuck your ear against the door and you were listening in on Coltrane practicing or Bird practicing or, like, one of these modern guys, or sometimes she would use, like, one of the student assistants that were there from the college. Like, if you listen to, like, this guy, Doug Pierce, practicing, you know, it would sound bad because <laughs> Doug would be in there or Bird or Tran would be playing stuff that they were bad at. That's right. That's sound, right. That's right. Like, that, yeah. You know, it wouldn't sound like what you paid to see on the bandstand. You're going to hear him like working stuff out. So, so that's always been really important. Uh, an important thing that's in the back of my head at all times, which is like, I'm not supposed to sound good in the shed. You know, you I know, love that, dude. That's right. That's exactly that, right. Yeah, you know. Well, you know, you know why we call it a shed. You know, you know why instruments your axe. You know, like call it the axe because. Uh, the tradition was guys would have to practice in the woodshed, and what else do you do in the woodshed? You chop wood, <laughs> and that's what practice is: is you take your axe out to that out back to the woodshed, and you're chopping wood. Oh, man. So that's that's a, a big tenant. And then later, I, I mentioned accidentally, but uh, uh, John Gist uh, was a guy that I studied with uh, later in high school. Uh, he's a he's a phenomenal player. He, he's still a Michigan Grand Rapids cat. Um, phenomenal player. His brother, Randy, is actually, like, out in California and, like, has uh, done all the saxophone things you can do. And he's a, they're both just tremendous saxophone players. But John would always tell me, he says, you know, when you sit down and practice, you want to split it sort of into three sections. You want to start by warming up, you know, like running your scales, running your arpeggios, getting your fingers moving, getting your juice flowing. You know, play some stuff that you know to get, just get stuff going, and you know that should be about a third of your of your regimen every day. And then in the middle, you want to you want to work on something that you're bad at, or something that you need to learn. Like if you've got some rep for a gig, or a recital, or if it's just something like hard that you're trying to work out, or you know, like 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 the middle third of your of your session of your shed should be uh, whatever you're like whatever you suck at you know i dig no i dig i dig i dig but then he said you know like the end of it the thing you want to do is 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 play because the whole the whole point is like music is is, like like we're playing music you know it it shouldn't be torture it should be uh you know it should you're not just pushing a boulder up a hill you want to remind yourself you know that that this thing is like real and good and and enjoyable and so the last third, he said, just play something that you like or just play or blow free or do whatever you want. Just, just interact with the, with the instrument. And so that's sort of how I've, I've, I've sort of stuck to that. And that's sort of how I teach. My first lesson with any new student, regardless of what the instrument is, is here's how you practice. Because if you figure out how to practice, then the rest of it's you know, relatively easy. And I think that that works really well. You know, you warm up, you work, and then you play. I love it. So when you, that that playing part of it is what I was getting at. Like, that's more what, you listen to Jim Hall or, I mean, like, I've never had a chance to listen to these guys practice, but they're doing that third part, you know, they're playing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, and that's the the other, the other thing that that does for me personally, uh, 
is it, it helps me sort of divorce the, you know, like, like, you know, I appreciate it earlier. You know, you're, you're, you're beautiful. You're too kind introduction. Frankly, like I, you're right though. I don't, I'm not really thinking about rudiments when I'm on stage. I'm not really thinking about the stuff that I work on in the shed because I try to keep that in the shed. And one of the ways that I sort of divorce that is, you know, I, I practice what I'm practicing and then I play. And I, I have those sort of separated and, 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 and compartmentalized in my, in the structure of how I actually interact with my horn every day. And it, it, and it helps, I feel like, keep a more uh, naturalistic and conversational tone to the instrument. Yeah, I also think that, like, <clears throat> there's something to be said for sort of the push and pull of. I mean, there is a little bit of angst in the in practicing just because you have to surrender to that middle part of things that you maybe really need to shed on, which is hard. But yet... You, oh, oh, gracious, yes. You know, but, like, I really dig the idea of, like, breaking it into three parts. Do you find that you often have... Do you have to prod some of your students to work on that, that middle section more? Because they don't... Like, to me, it would be hard to for the lack of a better word, just suck at something and then try to work that out. But ultimately, that's how you get to the top of the mountain. I just wonder how successful it, it worked for you. Where do you have to prod your students? Which sections of the practicing do you have to get on them about? It, it, you know, every student I've ever had is different. You know, I, I, I currently have a guitar student, and, and she is fabulous with practice. She does, I say, go home and practice this, and then the next week she's like, I practiced it and she's, she's getting better every week. And she's, and she's, you know, adhering to the, she's sticking to the plan, you know, she's trusting the process. And, and, I, and you know, part of it's still like, you know, it, it's slow going when you're learning an instrument from scratch. You have to remind, you know, I, I remind her constantly like you're getting better. I can hear you getting better. I can see you getting better. I can see the work. The work is there. Right. And in six months, you won't you, you'll you won't even remember how hard this is now. On the flip side, I had a saxophone student recently who uh, who was very eager to learn, but he would <laughs> I would give him you know you know, work on these things because we're you know we're working on this parts of your technique or whatever. <clears throat> Pardon me. And then he would come in the next week and say, well, I didn't practice any of the things you told me, but I learned all these two five patterns from this video on YouTube. <laughs> it's like, that's great. But yeah. like two fives are cool and important, but that's not helping you like improve the tone on your saxophone. That's not helping you like, cause that's sort of the difference too. Like there's music and then there's the facility on the instrument. Exactly. And in, in a lot of ways they can be one of the same, but in a lot of ways they can be very different. And, and like, it's hard, sometimes it's hard to teach musicality, you know, you can teach facility all day, but they're, they're sort of a different animal. And, and so the, 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 the first student, she's doing great with the facility and the musicality will come eventually. She'll find it. But this other cat was very musical, but like couldn't (laughs) express it because he wasn't doing the work on the horn. I, I love this. No, this is, that is so, I mean, I, I think it might, I mean, if he can kind of get the discipline, I think it's just important to be musical because the musicality part of it, that's what I, I kept hearing from you is just like, you were talking through your instrument. 
you were being musical through your instrument. You were using your voice through your instrument. I mean, you weren't channeling Pharaoh, but San, so, but I mean, it was like, that's the difference. I don't need a lot of notes. I don't want that kind of intellectual, like, look at me, look at me, look at me. I want people that can play, but then all of a sudden they're like, I don't know, just ripping off like, I don't, you know, like Joe Farrell, you know, like on a CTI record where he's just like blowing to the heavens and it's just his voice or he's channeling the birds or something like that. I mean, I, to me, it's like, and I just feel like in this day, I think what you were lucky, correct me if I'm wrong, is just that bandstand experience, no matter how lame those corporate gigs were, I just don't know if younger cats, younger than you, have those opportunities to really get comfortable with their own sound on the bandstand today. Oh, I mean, the, the, the amount, like, I cannot, I can't even begin to express how lucky I was to have my first experience sucking on stage, <laughs> being, being in, a, in, in a, in a, you know, a high school jazz band gig. Like, it's just so, I was able to burn a lot of that, old brush out of the way quick which is nice uh in a in in an environment where it's like well i'm comfortable because this is my high school band and and you know at the time i didn't realize that was what was happening but i look back on that it's like i couldn't have been luckier to (laughs) to have been able to play so much in high school in this in this format that's not super dissimilar from what i do now you know like a jazz combo uh isn't super different from what we were doing with with rich you know uh even though you know like you said his his music is sort of i can't i still can't really i mean there's just no yeah it's just it's i'm i'm still sort of in a haze i mean it's a good it's a beautiful haze but i don't know what i still feel like the music's evolving and i also feel like it was very hard to really keep evolving with a with a short 45 minute set you put a 90 minute set on that i I, you're going out to the stratosphere yeah, Rich is. I mean, I I've known Rich, so he's sort of he's he's from Ohio, but he has family in Michigan, and we 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 were on, we're on, we're on, we just, when he lived up here, we were on a lot of the same sort of festival circuits, so we we met each other just playing these these festivals together with different groups. He and said that he said he met said, you. He said he met you when you were like doing this like six saxophone thing. <laughs> he was yeah. like dude this guy he kept seeing you doing it he's like i gotta know who is this cat man yeah we were there was a festival who decided one year to just give to just give me a slot first thing sunday morning oh no yeah that's right oh, that's right yeah the, the, the saxophone summit and yeah it was like <laughs> me and as many saxophone players as were at the festival <laughs> And, and it was a bunch of guys that really didn't, you know, we kind of broke in some cats, but, uh, but uh, it was like, all right, we're going to free improvise. And I'm like, what do you mean we're going to free improvise? It's like, just watch this, you know? And cause I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of free playing, free impro- improvisation. That's actually like, I, I dig, I really, I want to get into that. Let, go ahead. Yeah. I, I can feel that. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So. So yeah, so so Mike, yeah, yeah, Rich saw us, Mike saw us, like, you know, it's like okay, Sunday morning. So they would do like a, they would do a yoga, like a sunrise yoga, 
and then they would do like a poetry reading accompanied by like soft electric guitar, like finger picking electric guitar. And then there's <laughs> suddenly six saxophone players playing into Shure SM57s, full scrock mode, full Whoa. improvisation, Damn. no plan, no, you know, no nothing. And to me, like, you know, that's, that's, there's a purity in raw improvisation, especially with guys and, and gals that don't do it often like there's this honesty and purity that like i just i love so much i mean you know like, sex squatch you're making my day dude because that's what jazz to me the labels suck the music of jazz is just authentic honest interpretation that's yeah, just absolutely. you know what i'm saying like it's just it's who you are it's how you tell your story that's the whole point is how do you well, yeah go ahead oh i was gonna say like you know, like, I love John Coltrane, but, man, like, some of the best playing John Coltrane ever did was, you know, late era, full improv, you know, Rashid Ali and John on Interstellar Space. You write Ascensions like and stuff, yeah. 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 Like, you know, like, John Gorf. I mean, Love Supreme, Love Supreme is a perfect record, and it sort of demarcates the the break from, like, old train to new train, like in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, that was still the classic quartet. Um, you know, it was before a lot of those guys started leaving, but man, like that record is beautiful. And it's like, you know, I think I saw the, the sheet music to one of the pieces on it has like the head written out. And then it just writes, and it's just, uh, <laughs> improvised solos, all instruments, all keys. Oh like my God, dude, this is the greatest thing. Cause yeah, I mean God, that stuff, know? man, the side B takes. There's different vibes. Uh, it is a per, it's a perfect record, but you know, and then those sheets of sound that McCoy and Elvin are driving up. It's just oh, yeah. intoxicating. I want to read you this quote and then, and then get your your feedback on it. <clears throat> this is one of my interviews with Lenny White, the drummer. He said, "I played a first gig. He was like 13 years old. I played a backbeat on the bandstand with Jack McLean." He turned around and, and yelled at me, no backbeat, no backbeat. I learned by making mistakes or failing at something. You know, the next time you cannot do that. I learned from band leaders telling me, hey, man, that's not what to play. I remember doing my first actual live gig with Ron Carter. He played something that was off the beat, and I did the same thing. He said, man, don't do that. If you do that, that negates what it is I'm doing. You have to play something so that I can play against what it is that you do to make what it is that I do interesting. So there's two questions in, in this for you, because a lot of people would say, oh, man, what is you talking about counterpoint? You know, Ron's like, play something against what I'm playing. And then Jackie's yelling at Lenny, no backbeat. So I want to get the sack squatch, you know, in your uh, jazz ensembles or just, you know, the, 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 the cats that you groove with. Um, over time, can you just talk about why you give me your thoughts on backbeat as it relates to, to especially playing improvisational jazz music and then ultimately how you get the rhythm section to not push and pull, but do that kind of counterpoint where you're playing, they're playing off of each other so that the entire ensemble, the music starts to transcend. You know, um, or maybe you, did, you you just riff on that any way you want. Yeah, so I guess it's... So, like, backbeat, 
or you know a swing beat that's a little forward or a swing beat that's a little behind or or like a halftime or you know just like a solid quarter note or whatever you're doing to me it all depends on uh, like what's the vibe what's the setting you know? sure are we freely improvising because freely free improvisation or or spontaneous improvisation or like something that's less orchestrated uh, is different, but like, you know, I, like I listen to like, um, you know, like uh, a good, I think a good example of, of sort of that first question, like no backbeat, you know, I listen to somebody like Tony Williams. Right. And, you know, like the later stuff, Tony Williams lifetime stuff so uh, under no circumstances would i turn to tony williams and say no back me like, uh, i did also like you know if when tony williams is playing with uh you know uh when he's playing with uh herbie on you know on big voyage you know oh my god he's got it... that giant you know on the title track he's got that giant lazy ride symbol that's amazing and you know like yeah i wouldn't put a backbeat on that I think that I think to me. No, I want I want to jump in for a second because you know what, what what Jackie was saying. This is the thing. What Lenny went on to say. He goes. He didn't want to be hemmed in by the bat. He wanted it like a more of a round feel. He didn't want to be locked yeah. into that. You know. Yeah, I think so. There's there's sort of this. There's a lot of soft skills that exist in in, in music. Yes. That are interesting to to sort of navigate i think and one of those things is like bandstand hierarchy right mm. and and I, I i the term hierarchy is not one to use but it's sort of the best to, to my vocabulary in this moment in time sort of the best thing that comes to me but like you know as an example when i'm playing with with rich uh when i got to play with rich and and, and you know play with him for nine nights playing his music you know it's like I'm here, you know, he called, he called me because he wanted me to do my thing mm -hmm. and he trusted me, but he trusted me with his music and that, you know, like baseline, like hierarchically speaking, you know, I, well, I, I'm there to serve his music in the best way that I can. And so there's this, there's this mutual understanding that, you know, he wants me to do what I'm going to do but he wants me to do what I'm going to do in service to this thing that he is, uh, you know, curating and, and, and bringing to life. And so there's this, this push and pull where push and pull is not even the right term, but there's this, there's this balance that you have to strike between hi, I'm the sack squats. This, mm -hmm. this is what I do. This mm -hmm. is who I am. But we're playing this song older, but not less confused by rich Ruth. And it goes like this, and these are the vibe. This is the vibe, and this is the thought, and this is the feeling, and this is and what we're expressing here is this, this idea that Rich is trying to to curate and to bring bring forward. So, yeah, like no, I come, dude, you're nailing this because there's an etiquette. I don't want to say etiquette, but I guarantee, I know that that hierarchy can get effed up if the sax player, not you comes in and starts barreling over or not paying homage to the music he was brought in to play, you know? 
Yeah, like if I had come in and like tried to like crap out bop licks, which are not my strength. <laughs> I was kind of hoping. Anyway. No, I dig. I mean, you didn't have enough time, but you, but it was like tasteful. You know, that's a very beautiful yeah, thing. I mean, you know. Yeah, like there's a, there's a time and place to crap out a bop lick, and it's not over a Rich Ruth solo necessarily. You know, like, uh, you know, and, and like, but the same thing can be said. Like, I, I play with other groups. You know, uh, I used to play with a group called Spirits Rejoice, which uh, we're we're on we're on an, uh, an extended hiatus simply because all of us live in different cities now. Um, but Spirits Rejoice was uh, it was it was named as a tribute to Albert Eiler. Oh my, are you kidding? Are there t- are there bootlegs out there? You guys made records? Uh, there are recordings from Spirits of Joyce. I can I can see Yo, flip hit me to that. I do that is so Go ahead, continue. Yeah, I'll, I'll hit you to some spirits, but uh but it was uh it, it was our it was both a spiritual tribute and a literal tribute to Albert Eiler, who in my opinion is the least it's the he's the most underrated saxophonist of all time. He's one of the most important saxophonists of all time. I mean, he's the guy who inspired Train to go free. So, like, without without Albert Iron, we don't get late Aaron Train, or, or if we do, it's way later. Interesting. Or way different. Interesting. Um, and, and, and Albert, unfortunately, died in obscurity, jumped off a bridge when he found out that his brother had died. Like, he was driven by passion. Like, he, and his music is... is, is is beautiful and haunting and revelristic and and celebratory and and painful and like all these things at once and none of these things at all and so when I play with Spirits Rejoice, we're trying to capture this idea of of like everything and nothing almost you know kind of like if you want to go Taoist Buddhist on it everything and nothing <laughs> like. But that, but that balance, you know, instead of we're not we're not curating a specific sound that was predetermined or like sort of pre-written or preconceived. Uh, we're we're doing the other thing, which is like, you know, yes, the rhythm section is, is sort of balancing with each other because we're all listening to each other, and when somebody does something, we're all reacting and interacting with it. And the only thing that really is important is eventually somewhere a beat appears. When I say a beat appears, I don't mean like somebody starts playing like a downbeat or a backbeat. I mean, we all sort of agree without agreeing. Oh, here's the, we're playing them in, in time. That time is hard to discern because none of us are necessarily referencing it directly. But I think when, when you're blowing free that's sort of the thing that you want is like, there's a one, there's a, there's a, there's a one on a metronome that's, that is in space and everybody acknowledges it, but nobody necessarily plates it. I d- no dude, you're it. nailing it, dude. You're nailing it as usual. So, so that's sort of my, you know, like that's, the, the it, it's implied. Sort of, yeah. It's an, it, I, uh, but I do. I, I got. I want. Uh, this is and this is not my opinion. But I. But you made a very bold statement about Eiler, and I think it's beautifully inspirational. But I want to read this to you because I. <clears throat> this is really fascinating. Uh, I've done a couple interviews with the drummer uh, Joe Chambers, who who played a lot with Bobby. Oh, yeah. Okay, and so again, this is coming from him. But when I want you to, and I want you to recognize that these guys were all fighting for gigs as well. 
to make a living. So this is what he said to me in our last interview. He said, writers and journalists had this term they used called avant-garde. They were talking about free jazz. Stanley Crouch, rest in peace, said the free avant-garde music is what we were doing on Blue Note. Now, he's talking about uh, components, you know, the mids, Andrew Hill, that kind of stuff. He goes, he goes, uh, he goes, is what we were doing on Blue Note, not Shep and not Eiler. You could hear all the tradition in those Blue Note record recordings. We could swing, we could play the blues, and we could run through changes. Those cats, Eiler and Shep, were around doing their thing, but they couldn't play no tunes. They couldn't play no changes. Those cats were playing altissimo, squeaks and squawks. They couldn't get a job at Radio City or backing up a singer. Eric Dolphy doesn't belong in that group because Eric was a traditional musician. He knew everything and played in the orchestra. Pharaoh Sanders was playing changes way back then. Even when Train started doing the altissimo, they accepted it because they had heard him play before. All they could, all they could do, Shep and Eiler, is what they did. Shep got better and, as of today, can play changes. You we want to now get you know Sack Squatch. You weren't you were not fighting for uh, gigs at the five spot or, or with Isler or Ornette with the plastic trumpet Don Ellis. So we weren't we don't know what that competition was like. But what right. you just said about Isler being emotive. Um, well, here's, the, what, here's, here's yeah, my put here's go my you riff on that. The floor is yours. Yeah. Here, here's my counterpoint. Uh, you know, and, and no disrespect. No, nah, dude, yeah, there, it's but, fine. But Albert's first professional gig was uh, when he was uh, on summers from high school, 16 and 17, touring uh, with a blues band. Uh, you know. So you believe he could play Jane? You believe, he was, he, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. When he was young in Cleveland, his nickname was Little Bird when he was, uh, when he was uh, in his teens and early 20s in Cleveland, Ohio, because... According to everyone that heard him play, he, he could play and sound just like uh, just like Bird wow. uh, at that age. And everyone agrees that Albert Eiler was doing his thing transcendently uh, less uh, shortcutting. You know, he's not. I I I don't cotton to the idea that uh, that Albert couldn't play changes. Uh, my, I agree. A lot of people I, would agree with you, man. No, I, I dig I you. Mean, I, I dig. I dig. I dig. You think he got bored of you know, like? Because that's the thing. People, people like will say, well, he just he 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 wanted to be him. He didn't want to sound like Charlie Parker again. He wanted to be himself. He didn't. Yeah, he he didn't have an interest. Yeah, exactly. Like I, Albert, it's clear to me. I mean, with with the interviews that I've heard and read of his, and just by just by consuming his music, like it's it's so clear to me. Like he had no. He had no uh, interest in getting gigs at the five spot. Like he wasn't. He wasn't <laughs> after those gigs. In the I know. I just like, like if, if his if, interest was making music, and, and I mean, I I, I I I posit like you know listening to Special Unity or Spirits of Joyce, the record Spirits of Joyce, or even uh, Love Cry. Yeah. Uh, like there's like his 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 facility and musicality on the horn. As a saxophone player, his facility and musicality on the horn is is undeniable. He, the stuff he does and, and on those recordings is is difficult. I mean, and and he can play his 
his butt off. I mean, he, he's really, he's really something from like a, from a technical standpoint. Uh, but, uh, but also, yeah, he didn't care about sounding like, you know, bird or, you know, there's a couple, there's a couple of like sort of semi-apocryphal stories. You can share one, are, yes, please. Yeah. And one of my, one of my favorites is, is, uh, there's, there's a story where Coltrane would get bootlegs uh, of Eiler's record, like, like live performances and he would shed to them <laughs> like in his hotel room at night. Like he had a tape, he had a tape player that he would like shed to. Oh, of course. To Albert. So yeah, sick. Like, so Albert sick. Yeah. And there's a, and the, and the, the, that ties into this other story where, and, and again, Albert t- tells the story. So there's some level of apocrypha to it, but, the story goes that John came up to Albert one day at one of Albert's shows and said, Albert, I had a dream last night that I was playing my saxophone and I sounded just as good as you. <laughs> wow. And I mean, you know, that's I don't so know cool, man. Say. No, I mean, I want to, ca- I want to come back. I just, this is fascinating for the discussion purposes. Just Stanley Crouch, who I'm not, I haven't read a lot of him, but you know, he was a, good writer of music in that time period. And, you know, I just like from a teach teacher point of view and just sort of somebody who's been through, well, like we've been talking about, you were in the shed and you had great teachers and what Chambers (coughs) was saying, you know, if you came across a student that was pure emotion, uh, how would you feel if they could not, it, it, what what Crouch was saying was that in those mid '60s Blue Note albums, you know, Dialogue, a lot of those interesting albums, uh, Bobby Hudgerson, it's like, you know, he was like, you could hear the tradition, you could you could hear the blues, and you could play changes, and and a lot of people would say Eiler, there was no tune, it was just so free that where's the tradition? And again, I don't want to be an old fo- you know folky, but. I'm just wondering how you would approach that in terms of saying, because at the end of the day, we all know we got to put food on our table. We got to pay our bills. I mean, I mean, I don't know if I, it was, I guess a lot of people were like, are you, you know, they could say about Eiler that, that at that point when he decided to go into his free mode, even though he had the chops to do everything else, um, that it was not disrespectful, but nobody could recognize that it was jazz per se because of, of these, of this, no swing, uh, you know, no, couldn't play blues or run through changes, whether he could or he couldn't, it wasn't apparent in the music. So it wasn't recognizable. And I wonder how you would work with a student today who would come in squeaking and squawking and whether you You would, yeah. There are guys that'll tell you that jazz died in 1967. <laughs> there, are, there are guys that tell you that jazz died in 1958. And there are guys that will say that, oh, jazz is all garbage after 46. Right. Like, I dig. Like, I don't have a lot of time for people that want to like debate <laughs> what jazz is. I dig, man. Yeah. A lot of the early. A lot of the early cats didn't even like the label to begin with. I mean, Ellington called it black classical. Mingus called it Mingus music. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, like, so, like, at the end of the day, like, who cares what we're calling it? Uh, To me, you know, just to touch on Eiler for a minute, like, the tradition is undeniable and unmistakable, in my opinion. Uh, With the one caveat that Eiler was also referencing. Uh, uh, he was he was a, he was an army man, and and a lot of his 
work directly references uh, military marches. Really? Um, wow. You know, oh, wow. Yeah. I wow. mean, uh, there's, there's a tune, uh, you know, the, the tune, um, oh, good gracious, I'm, I'm going to show my butt. Uh, the tune, <laughs> Spirits Rejoice, you know, it, it's it, the, the, the line, ba 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 uh, and then improvised it with a, a trumpet player who was his brother and a drummer and a, and a, uh, a bassist. And like, so like the tradition are there, it's, uh, and it's just infused with these other traditions and it's infused with these new ideas. Um, if I encountered a student that wanted to play like that, you know, I would, you know, there, there's, there's, I do think that there's something to be said about like, there are no shortcuts in life. There right. are no shortcuts in music necessarily. And again, I think that the thing that people miss about Eiler is that he did the work and he was a, a fantastic saxophonist and musician. And he, after doing all these other things, decided that that's where he wanted to live. So I think that there is some importance there. Like you should learn the, the basics. You should learn the fundamentals. You should do that because if only to better express the ideas that you are trying to express if they are you know like you said sort of pure emotion like learning what a two five turnaround is is it going to make you any less emotional you know i did yeah totally guitar players get this too there's a bunch of guitar players out there that think oh i can't learn theory it'll ruin how i play it's like that's just (laughs) <laughs> fundamentally inaccurate i love know, that i mean it's it's it, meaning that they're totally street scholars and they're afraid that if they get some sort of rudiments or or knowledge that it, they're it's gonna screw up their own yeah. na- natural thing yeah there's it's yeah there's this sort of uh yeah i mean i would even call it like a like a boogeyman or like you know it's <laughs> it's this weird this belief that like learning learning the names for things is going to somehow make you less capable of doing them genuinely. Mm. And I think there's, there's certainly like, there's certainly a danger of overthinking on the bandstand. Like we've all seen it. Absolutely. <laughs> no, that means it's very real. Yeah. Overthink on the bandstand. And, and as musicians, we've all done it. Uh, we've all done it, whether we are thinking about, Oh, well, this is a, you know, this is like a, a, a dominant five to a minor three to a diminished three to, you know, like, or whether we're just thinking, like thinking, oh man, I really need to nail this solo. Oh man, what fret was that? Oh man, we've all overthought stuff. Absolutely. And like knowing the names of your chords isn't going to make you any more or less <laughs> uh, likely to, to overthink on the bandstand. Uh or uh, it's only going to expand your vocabulary. It's going to make it easier for you to talk to other musicians who share that same vocabulary. And it's just, you know, it's going to elucidate a lot of things, you know, like if you're, if you're as an example, a guitar player that learned, just learned how to play music from like by ear or a tablature or whatever, you know, and like you realize one day, like if somebody gives you a couple lessons and, and let's say you, take some lessons from a blues guitar player and they teach you a 12 bar blues is now they said you go, Oh, wait a second. Uh, the breeze by, uh, by, uh, Skinner. 
when it's, you know, yeah. it's just a 12-bar blues song. Or, you know, like, Give Me One Reason by Tracy Chapman is just a 12-bar blues song. Like, that's not going to make you any worse at playing those songs. That's right. Uh, so, so I think, like, yeah, to find somebody that is, is driven purely by the, the sort of spirit of it, uh, I would still encourage them, you know, like, learn your rudiments, learn your fundamentals, learn your base, you know, the bare minimum theory, because it's really not that much, you know, and then go forward, you know, and, and, and bring to the world what you will. But but simply being able to describe what you want to other musicians is worth the entrance fee, in my opinion, especially <laughs> if you're stuff that's harder to sort of glean. Do you... Um... Do you have any idea if Eiler, I mean, obviously he took his life tragically. Was he able to carve out a living or did, was he one of these geniuses recognized only after? I guess that was the, the other thing. We're just, you know, figuring out that if you are driven and the music found you and you are driven to do this, then you got to be able to sing for your supper. And I, I mean, the point was they, they, some of the cats, even though they were, it would have been wild I mean, I would have loved to have seen these guys play free, but they, I mean, how, I mean, they were starving to death, you know? And I just wonder about, yeah. you know, I mean, did he, ultimately he said, I'm, I'm just tired. I don't want to sound like, you know, the next bird. I, even though I can do that, I'm just going to go off my own direction. Do you, do you know if he was actually was able to do okay, make a living for himself? You know, he was always kind of broke because, yeah, he was selling something a lot of people weren't buying. Right. He did a couple of European tours and did okay on those, from what I understand. And he certainly got gigs. Uh, but there are, again, there are sort of apocryphal stories of him borrowing, like pawning his saxophone and borrowing one of John Coltrane's because they were friends. That is awesome. Uh, no, because that was the thing. I mean, friends. it was, that was, that's what, I'm glad you brought that up because... You know, Don Menza. You know that? Do you know Menza? Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> he's at Birdland. He was in uh on the he was with Maynard Ferguson and and uh he had his horn with him to sit in. He was very young and this cat comes up to him and says, Hey man, I need to borrow your mouthpiece and uh and Don's like, Shit, all right, well here here you go and the guy they're like, You know who that is? And he's like they were like, That's Hank Mobley. Like, I mean, yeah, these guys were yep. down on, and I just, my question is for you, coming from, uh, you know, I'm just going to say humble upbringings, you didn't have a lot of material wealth, um, obviously your parents, you had brothers and siblings, do you feel like um, that you're able to incorporate your version of the blues into jazz, the music that, you, I hate labels, but when you're playing improvisationally, it's more bluesy than classicalized. Do you feel like you're able to get that story in because of your upbringing? Um, I think that to live a human life is to experience joy and love and tragedy. Uh, wow. You know, I think... Yeah, I, I guess, like, there's something to be said. I mean, the, the old adage is, like, uh, you know, like, uh, the starving artists make the best art because they're hungry. <laughs> you know? Right. At least I've heard, heard it said that way. I mean, there's there's certainly, like, 
when you when you when you struggle to pay bills, and when you have friends, uh, you know, take their own lives because they're not accepted by their families, and when you sort of live these lives that are, you know, all, all of us experience these kinds of things throughout our lives. Like, you know, you certainly don't run out of material, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that I, I play honestly or I try to. And um, You know what it is? It's like it, 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 the idea there is like, you know, before you go back, all the cats, Blue Lou, Marini, Bones, Malone, you know, all these Perla. I mean, there were two jazz schools in the country. It was Berkeley and North Texas, basically. Now right. it's like every school has a jazz program. It's been codified. There's a curriculum. And unless you're yeah. going to like Oberlin with Gary Bartz and Eddie Henderson getting the real deal, uh, it's going to become more of a, I just, you know what it is? What I loved about your, I mean, I keep joking about this with, with John Lee, John Lee Shannon is just like cooking with grease. There's nothing I do. I don't care what kind of music it is. I do not want something sterile that is being run through like some sort of efficiency model. Like I want grease and that comes from yeah, the, that I comes from the blues, you know? And I just, uh, yeah. and I feel like no matter where it came from, you, you do have that in your playing. So you have your, you have your own life story, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I love the blues. Ming, uh, Charles Mingus is one of my favorite uh, composers of all time, and, and like his his music is steeped in blues roots traditions. Uh, yeah, I cut my teeth playing at crappy blues jams around Kalamazoo. That's where I want to be. I uh, want to be with Sasquatch at those blues jams. That's where I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, upholstered sewers blowing away. But you know, that was it, that that. I mean, for lack of a better word, those are those are badges of honor. You know, those were huge moments for you. Looking back, I gotta believe. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's yeah, and, and so that a lot of that, like you know, that a lot of that stuff never, it, it never, it, it can never truly go away, and nor would I want it to. You know, I mean, I love blues, whether it's you know, t- you know, like country American country music, or like you know, uh, the you know, I've been playing with a sort of a. a uh, New Orleans inspired second line band up here. Wow. Uh, hmm. And same thing. It's just like this, this the wealth of like, somebody's the word tradition. And yeah, that's, that's certainly a word for it. But, it, you know, like it's, it's this humanness, I think, that exists that it's easy to forget about when you're thinking about it from the perspective of. <sighs> Of like it, like an education. Yeah, no, like, gr- like grade, like being graded. That's grading, you know. It's grading to be yeah. graded, you know. And I think, like you know, with with a lot of, I mean, a lot of my, a lot of my best friends and some of my favorite musicians who I get to play with are degree holding players that went through one program or another. Um, but you know, the thing that you know. The thing that I sort of see over and over again is like all these jazz schools push bebop, 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 because bebop is kind of the closest thing to a gradable product that you can sort of put out, you know, like, like you can, you can't really, you can't really grade somebody like, like, is this emotional enough? (laughs) No, I did. I mean, I I would do that, but that's, yeah, you can't quantify that. Yeah. 
yeah, there's no rub- there's no rubric, there's no standardization. But what you can do is listen to somebody and say, oh yeah, they they played those changes, you know, exactly. or oh they didn't play those changes and they were just playing blues over the top of it, and that's something they need to work on. And so like I feel like a lot of these schools have just shifted to like bebop is 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 what you're going to learn because bebop is what we can we can grade. <laughs> and there's not a lot of room for, uh, you know, like, here's a, here's a great example. About, about you know, five, five years ago, there were three great saxophone players coming through the, the program at Western Michigan University. <laughs> um, one, is, one is a, they're all very good friends of mine. Sammy Blosser over in Detroit, Michigan. Uh Caleb Elzinga, who's, I think he's out right now with uh, Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow Seekers. Uh. And then Ben Schmidt-Schwartz, who's, uh, who was in Chicago. And all three, none of them really fit into the, the bebop thing, you know. Caleb was here, but now, he, again, like, now he's playing, like, in, like, funky jam bands. <laughs> and like his guy is Bob Reynolds and he wants to do like this hmm. this this like you know this high end sort of crystalline uh funk jazz that's really cool. Totally. And then uh and Sammy's over in Detroit and she's coming up with these beautiful like sound pastiches and these bizarre, like gorgeous uh like textural things. And she's teaching classes on like how to find your own musical path, and like how how to you know survive uh, the, the music industry as a, as a woman in the arts, and like going like and, and not playing bebop anymore at all, and like you know just and, and like just today actually I saw a video of her on Instagram like doing these beautiful uh, circular breathing patterns. Oh, I love so, it. That's great. And, and then Ben Schmidt Schwartz just finished the tour uh, last week with uh, a, a doctor, uh, Doctor Biggs, who's here at Western. But they were touring different uh, spaces, and it was tenor saxophone affected by uh, like high level computer uh, processing and, and effects processing. Whoa! Uh, Whoa! And and yeah, like like none of that's bebop. You know, but like <laughs> None there of are no classes at WMU for any of those. You know, wow, uh, that is my that I mean, and, and, yeah, and, and that's a tragedy. That's because there should be a hook your saxophone up to this microphone and have uh, a technology student make it sound like you know two robots killing each other, and there should be a you know like like a how to for like you know like running around the country with a crazy funk band. But it just isn't there. Well, you know, you bring up a good point because, uh, like we said, there's no metrics to grade that stuff per se. Um, And the truth is that whether it was Mike Knock or whoever it was that went to Berkeley, I mean, Herb Pomeroy was teaching there. He had the baddest big band that played six nights a week. So you were going to learn everything on the bandstand with your professors. It wasn't like you were in the class trying to show them that you could run through changes. You were playing live with them, right. you know? And, and like that, right. that live, like even when I interviewed Kenny Burrell, he's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> the jam sessions that took place in Detroit with Donald and Elvin and 
Pepper Adams. You know, they were making up vocabulary, listening to records in their basement. He goes, those jam sessions now at UCLA, they're taking place in the student union. It's not the same thing. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I, I... You know, Sax Squatch, we're going to have to do set two. We've been cooking here for 65 minutes, just having a ball. <laughs> but I just, you know, my my final question for you in set one... Because the Jake Feinberg show is an inspiring show. But I've also recognized that a lot of my work, my, my hope is that my work will live on long after I've left this planet. And I just want you to talk about, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're kind of down or you're feeling sorry for yourself or, you know, you're just not in the greatest mood. Do you recognize that? Your essence and your, you know, just what you bring to the table will live on long after you've left this planet. And does that give you some solace in terms of leaving a legacy? Because, you know, I feel like in this time, in this Judeo-Christian culture, in the way that, quote-unquote, success is uh, determined... Uh, is really bogus. And when you're talking about healers, people that can take you on journeys and heal your psyche and make you feel so good. I mean, I've watched, I've been perseverating over that video with you in circles. It's like, it's just been so healing for me. And I just wonder if you, if you think about that in terms of, I just know I've interviewed a lot of cats who were like, wow, I, I didn't think anybody cared about that album, and now we're playing tracks off of it. Now, they're still alive, but I've just realized that things will live on, and I wonder if you uh, realize that your legacy will live on long after you've left this earth, too. You know, I've... It's a weird... It's a, My relationship with... Uh, with legacy is is one where uh, I mean you're only 34, so I mean you know come I'm 34. Yeah. My relationship with legacy is 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 one with low expectations or no expectations. Like <laughs> no, that's good. No I expectations my, is key. That I love that. Only intentions. I I, I find myself a uh, you know sort of a nihilist is the wrong word, word word because I know I exist and I love being here, but but I think like uh, the universe. If the universe cares about me at all, that would be a miracle in and of itself to me. Um, so, you know, like I said, I'm, I, I, I mean this with all the, uh, I mean this with all the energy in the world. Uh, I'm, I'm actually just, I'm just happy to be here. Hey, man, um, I want to tell you something. If, but you know what? Like, the universe does care about you, and I urge you to try to be a little more vulnerable to that concept over time because it will keep you very young. Uh, and and even only seeing you a couple of times for just a few minutes here and there, um, it is very obvious that you are, you know, a vital sound sonic expander in this time, man. So I, even though it's not your, it's more your habitual nature to think that way, I would try to go towards your true nature and sort of believe, in fact, the universe is just you know, eager to have you here. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I, uh, I'll try, you know, just I, baby, I just baby steps, man. Just baby steps. That's it. You know, 
I appreciate that. Yeah. No, I can, I can, I can dig it. I, I have something to think about uh, when I'm in the shed here. Exactly, dude. No, and I'm, and I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke, man. I mean, dude, I have, I know you, I know that, you know. I, I was going to ask you this, but we'll save it for set two. But I mean, you know, most musicians, they play, they move on. And, and really with my interviews, I, unless I'm transcribing them and putting them up in print, I'm not going back and, and, and listening to them. But man, what you did at the Sinclair with Circles is the greatest. It, it's, been, it's been healing me for, since that time, for over a month, dude. You know, I, and you know, you don't know. So I'm just saying, like, that's, you're doing that on, that's unquantifiable stuff, man. And I'm just letting you know. I, so I just say take some baby steps in that direction. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I really do. And let's do this again, man. I'm going. Uh, I'm going out of town for a minute, but um, let's let's circle back. And and uh, God, I, you know, Chris Pierce, thanks for connecting us. I, we we we, we got to get you down to the Southwest at some point to, to hang and jam with us down here. You know. Yeah, man. I've, I've got I've got hooks over there with. Uh... I play with uh, with Chris with Greasy, with uh, A Billy Free uh, out of New Mexico, and then the Lasso, who's in Detroit now, but who lived in Tucson for several years. Wow! So I've been down. I've been down that way. We were down there in September, and I'm sure I'll be back. I'm just letting you know we have now. Also, my buddy Arthur Vint. We I I don't know how this happened. I don't know if you've ever been to Baker's Keyboard Lounge, but like we have one of the hippest jazz clubs in the country right now called the century room. So it, it, let me know when you got <laughs> rich Ruth's going to be introduced to it in late February when he comes down with this other band. But when you come down, right. when you come down, you, we're going to get you on the bandstand down there. You can, you can believe that. Cause I, I can't even believe Tucson's so lucky to have this kind of place. It's like, a, it's like a throw. It's like, it's, it's, it's great. You know? Um, and it's it's great to it was great to hang with you, man. This is uh, it's been a ball, man. You just keep it happening. Hey, you too, man. It was great meeting you out there, and uh, and uh, yeah, Greasy Greasy said you were coming. Uh, like, Greasy's yeah, like, so. yo, you got to watch out for Sasquatch, dude. And he was told as usual, spot on, baby. So you just keep it happening, man. We'll talk real soon. All right, my man. You have yourself a good one. All right, be cool, brother. You too, man. Peace. Peace.